You're listening to Speculation Podcast, where we tackle tough topics from a biblical perspective. Here's your host, Kelly Van Herstal. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Speculation Podcast. This is Pastor Kelly. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving break, and I know I did. Uh, took some time off, went down to visit some family, as well as just uh, got some R and R. It's a great time, and uh, really looking forward to getting into the Christmas season. I know everybody's probably listening to their Christmas music and is pumped for all that uh, that happens this time of year. Um, a lot of Advent sermons that are going around, uh, which are great to hear. I uh, love all of the encouragement and all of the uh, the beauty that is celebrating our Christ, our, our, our Messiah, our Savior being born this month. So exciting times. And then uh, obviously I hope everyone's planning on a great 2020 um, it's going to be a great year for the podcast, already starting to, to line things up with uh, special guests and, and people coming on. So it's going to be a, a, a cool few weeks here as we wrap up 2019 and start to get into 2020. But uh, today I want to address a, a question that was submitted by a listener, and it's a fantastic question. I And I'm probably going to do this in two parts. I'm going to introduce the, the topic tonight, and then next week we're going to apply it. But the question was, how are we supposed to interpret the Bible? And I thought about that. I said, wow, I can't believe I haven't tackled this subject before. In the first two episodes of this podcast, we talked about the authority of the Bible, how we got the Bible, why we can trust the Bible, but we never really went into how do we interpret the Bible, which is is a huge factor. And so I want us to actually spend two weeks on this topic the, tonight, what we'll do is to look at the the various steps in interpreting the Bible, and then next week we'll actually apply it. So I'll walk you through a particular passage that is not simple, that is difficult, but one when done with the exact exegetical model is pretty clear. And so tonight, what I want to do is is introduce the ten steps of proper exegesis. And if you're not familiar with what exegesis is, let me define that. So exegesis is from the Latin, is a Latin term, and it means to pull out something. And so when we're reading the Bible, what we're trying to do is pull out the, the principle. What is the author trying to say? And how can we apply that? Now, I'm of the component that there is one main meaning, but there are multiple applications. And that depends on the text, of course, and context and things like that. But I know that the author is writing what has a particular point they're trying to make. And my goal is to find out what that point is. Why are they saying what they're saying? Not just what they're saying, but why they are saying what they're saying. What is the heart of the message? And it's so simple to take scripture and and look at it from a simplistic approach and say scripture is this, it just scripture says it so we must obey it which yeah i get that to a degree but that's also a really easy way to drop into legalism and just look at the what without understanding the why and we can see things like scriptures being ex- being used for excuses when they should never be used for excuses we see a lot of bad things happen when scripture is used as for an excuse and instead of really hunting down the original meaning and finding the alignment with the heart of god and we need to find the alignment with the heart of god not just use scripture for an excuse 
And you may also come across the word eisegesis. So whenever you look up eisegesis, eisegesis is right next to it. Eisegesis means we're putting meaning into the text. So this is where we got to be careful not to maybe take liberties or, or look at it too simplistically where we're putting our own meaning into the text. And so that's putting meaning into the text, not pulling it out. So we're trying, sometimes in, in this day and age, we can look at the scriptures, the Bible, and see it as... Um, as a 21st century American living in today's age and try to make our conclusions based off of that, in which case most of the time, if not every time, we're going to accidentally eisegete a text and not find the original meaning. What we need to do is find the original meaning and then base our application off of that. And so tonight what I'm going to do is walk you through 10 steps so to ensure that you're properly exegeting the text and not putting in meaning that's not really there. And then next week, I'll actually go through these 10 steps in a particular passage of scripture so you can see how it's done, or at least hear how it's done. And uh, I want to end this kind of introduction just by 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 giving you a, um, a line from a pastor friend of mine. He said, the Bible never means what it never meant. The Bible never means what it never meant. And that's a great line because, yes, when we're looking at trying to interpret the Bible, we need to to first figure out what it means so that we don't accidentally say something that it never meant to say. Okay, so on that note, let's jump in. So I'm going to first give you the 10 steps up front, and then I'll walk you through what each 10 step is, and then next week we'll go through it using a particular passage, and I'll, I'll tell you what passage that is at the end of this podcast. So the 10 steps of proper exegesis, and I got this from biblicaltraining.org, and it aligns really well with what I learned in school. I actually like this version more. I think it's simpler and gives you more straight to the point. And if you haven't heard of biblicaltraining.org, it really is a great free lecture series that goes through various different models and things of theological nature, hermeneutics, which is what we're studying tonight. And this was actually put together by Dr. Mark Strauss, who I've read and, and enjoyed in the past. And so he put 10 steps of uh, for exegesis, and it aligns really well with things I learned. So I thought I would use that. So the first step is you identify the genre. Second step is get the bigger picture, so historical and literary context. Third step is develop a thesis statement. So what is the author trying to say? What's the main point? The fourth step is outline the progress of thought in the passage. So breaking the passage up so you can understand where and why the author is saying what he's saying. Fifth is consult secondary sources. So this is where you see your commentaries or historical literatures. Six is analyze synactical relationships. So what types of things are happening from a syntax form that we can align, and I'll go deeper into that tonight. Seven is analyze key terms and themes, so aka word studies. Eight, resolve interpretive issues and problems. This is where you start questioning. This is where you ask the why. Instead of instead of just stopping at the what, we must ask why these words are being said. Just not in the sense of we're questioning God, but why What's the heart? We're going after the heart of what God is trying to say. We need to to seek after that. And number nine, evaluate results from the perspective of the wider contextual and theological issues. What else is said in the Bible according to this issue or or passage? You know, does it align with the rest of Scripture? Which we should always interpret Scripture by Scripture. So does it align? And then finally, summarize our results. We should always have a summary of, of what this passage is saying, whether you're preaching, you're teaching, you know, summarize it. You're writing a journal, you're just studying a passage for fun. Summarize it. What is being said? What have you learned? Journal it, whatever whatever you like to do. So let's go through those 10 
and just kind of give a brief synopsis of what each one is and then next week we'll we'll dive into I'll show you how to actually do it um, in a particular passage and, and I definitely won't choose an easy one I'll make it hard on myself for you guys so let's go back so the first step is is understanding the genre so this could be a number of things this could be um, the fact that it's a letter it could be a historical narrative it could be a poem it could be a proverbial um, the first thing you understand is what is the genre and the one we'll study is, is most likely going to be a, a letter or an epistle. But whenever you sit down to read a, a passage or a book, you need to understand what's the genre. A gospel is actually a genre. So if you're reading any of the gospels, you need to understand that there's a purpose, why that's being written. Um, and so that's what we're looking for is, is why this is being written, the various styles. The beautiful thing about the New Testament is that it's an ancient text and we have other ancient texts to compare it to. So things like letters, um, poems, things like that really stand out. Like I bet most of you didn't know that Genesis is actually a poem technically. So um, it's important to, to look at the genre so you can understand what why these things are being written and understand the style, the literary form is the technical term of of what is being written. It's extremely important to being able to fully understand the text because truth is communicated differently in different literary forms, different styles. You look at Jesus, he, did, he spoke in parables, right? That's a literary form. And so he also spoke in a lot of hyperbole. So we have to understand what is, um, what is he speaking in hyperbole and what is he not speaking in hyperbole because obviously if we take hyperbole from Jesus' words as literal, we're going to be walking around with a lot of limbs missing and eyes missing. Okay, a lot of you got that, some of you didn't. Um, and so we need to understand the genre and literary form as being said. The second, get the big picture. Okay, this is probably one of my favorite parts of, of biblical interpretation is the historical and literary context. If you don't know my background, I was a history major through my undergrad. I was actually on course to get my PhD in the Hellenistic period, which is, fancy enough, the time of the New Testament. So for me, I eat this up. I'm passionate about it. I love the historical context of the Bible. I love studying the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, who doesn't like the Greeks and the Romans, for crying out loud? There's a lot of great stuff to study. And so I love diving into the historical context and the literary context. What is happening at the time of conception of this writing? So if it's a letter, if it's an historical narrative, if it's a poem, whatever it is, what is influencing the writer? What is happening that God is speaking through this person to write about a particular to pick to particular event or, or issue or whatever that is? And when we're looking at letters in particular, there is a full reason why Paul is writing these things down, and we just have to figure that out. So what historically is happening, and what is the literary context that is happening so that we can better understand what's going on? And this is my favorite part. So there's a lot of resources out there that are able to help you do this. And then the kind of the, to touch on the literary context, you know, um, one cardinal rule with reference to getting the big picture is no matter how short on time you are in terms of your writing or your preparation, you need to take the time to establish the literary and historical and literary context. I think it's easy for us to look at the historical context, but you must also look at the literary context in this passage. In other words, get the full big picture it is absolutely essential. When you're looking at letters, why is Paul writing what he's saying? What is happening historically that we can grab a hold of that will help us to determine why this is being written? And, and when we look at that next week, I'm going to dive into that pretty deep on the various passages. 
Okay, so once you have that, it's important to develop a thesis statement. So the good thing with a letter, most of the time, it's harder in some of the other, say, some of the, the prophetic books and things like that. But develop a thesis statement. Read the entire book or letter or whatever it is and develop why that is being written. The thesis statement just makes a point, right? What's the main purpose that the author is getting across? What is Why is he writing this particular passage or or book in particular. I would start with the book and then go through the passage, have the passage align with that. So the thesis statement gives a general direction of, of why that book is being written or letter or whatever. Okay. Um, and then you want to outline the progress of thought in the passage. So this is number four, outline the progress or thought of the passage. This is where the Bible study becomes tedious. And I think this is where people struggle because this is a difficult thing to do with some of the longer books, but we need to outline exactly what's going on the introduction what is being said three points you know point number one the gospel is advancing through paul's testimony um, point two the gospel is advancing through the courage given to others to proclaim it um you know this is philippians 1 12, 1, 12 through 18 for example you know third point the gospel is advancing despite the false motives of some and then conclusion so write out what intro point one point two point three conclusion Right, outline the entire letter or book. You can start with Titus, one of the shortest letters in the Bible, if not the shortest, and and go from there. Um, and so we want to outline it. What is being said? Point it out. You know, we want to be masters of of the scriptures of the of the Bible. And so we must be able to do things like that. And in in my master's program, and they had us outline, outline, outline passages. I spent an entire semester on one passage. And, and just spent the entire time outlining it, word studying, and then coming up with a conclusion at the end. It was it was pretty intense. All right, let's move on. So once you have it outlined and you have a really good understanding of things that are going on, you can start to consult your secondary sources. Um, the Bible is what we call a, a primary source. It is um, the original author's writings. Um, and so we want to consult secondary sources. These are commentaries. These are historical nature books. Um, there's some great ones out there. I usually suggest to read more than one commentary. I think some people really have a favorite commentator, like a favorite sports team. Um, do use some diversity. You know, see what other writers are writing about. I like using N.T. Wright. Um, I also like write using um, R.C. Sproul from time to time. Um, I mean, I like to get a wide grip of what is being said. So I'll look at various writers. I don't really try to get pigeonholed into one particular camp or or because I don't like the things or I don't agree with one camp. I'm not ever not like I'm ever going to use those things. You know, I am an advocate for women in leadership and doesn't mean I don't use John Piper in, in other areas of the Bible or I don't use Wayne Grudem or I don't use Schneider or Douglas Moo. And um, I think that's just crazy to not use what they're doing in other areas. I may not agree in some areas, but I'm not going to just discard everything they do. Um, and so I'm going to read every. I'm going to try to get as much as I can, um, and then especially on the historical side, right? Things that are not Christian in nature. Read the historical accounts of what's happening. You know, there's some great historical accounts that have come down to us during the time of the the of the New Testament that we can read and really get a solid handling of what was being talked about. What was the culture like? I mean, again, going back to the women in leadership aspect a little bit. I mean, women were extremely suppressed in this environment. You look at the Greek world. Romans, they had a little bit more leeway, but not much. I mean, you're talking about property here, not actual human beings. And so it's important to understand the historical context so you're not accidentally putting in your view or or a, or a 21st century view into the text, right? 
And so historical context, so this is where you can consult the secondary sources and really start to dive into a particular passage and things like that. And, and there are a number of different types of commentaries. You have expository commentaries, um, to name one in particular. Um, but, and I won't go into all the various kinds, but there are a lot. And you're going to see things that are specialized in different Hebrew and Greek. And I, I, I hope you do use most of those languages in your commentary series. But um, some of them that I like are the Expository Bible Commentary. I like the New International Commentary. I like Tyndale Old Testament. I like Bakery Exegetical Commentaries. I mean, there's there's quite a few. I use quite a few when, when evaluating texts. Um, so once you've, you've, you've visited your, your secondary sources or your commentaries, you're going to move into the uh, synactical approach. So this is where you start to, if you haven't done this already in the commentaries, this is where you're really diving into a particular passage. So especially when you're teaching or, or getting ready for sermon preparation or anything like that, um, you really want to start evaluating the passage that you're going to be teaching on. You've, you've looked at the big picture. You've looked at the historical context. You know how this passage fits in with the rest of the letter or the gospel or whatever it is. And now you're looking at the synaptical relationship. It just means the sentences and how they relate to each other. How are these sentences relating to what came before it, what came after it? And, and really going into to how it fits with the rest of the what is being said. The, 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 um, the thesis statement, all that must be taken into account. And, and then from there, we're going to move into um, analyzing key terms and themes. So once we have the main clause of each sentence and the subordinate clauses and identifying the function of those subordinate clauses, um, we're going to look at key terms. This is where our word studies come into play. And and I love living in the time that we do because we have so many great resources for us for word studies. Um, I'm a big fan of Strong Concordance, which is a list of basically every Greek word you can imagine. Um, that's used in theological circles. That's used in you know secular circles as far as just Greek studies. Um, it gives you a great insight into metaphors and, and things that are being used and, and why these words are being used, how often these are being used, how they're used in other areas of scripture. Um, one example I'll give you is the word ezer, which is helper which I find really interesting because in Genesis account, the there's people who will take helper as a subordinate position. So like Eve is the helper of Adam, therefore she is subordinate to Adam. And and if you use that word Ezer, but if you look at how it's used in the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that 15 of the 19 times Ezer is used, it's used as God is helping Israel. So in that sense, I'm like, well, I don't think Ezer always means helper or subordinate just based off the word helper. Okay, so you have to look at how us is being used in the rest of Scripture. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture, a big component of that. So this is where word studies come into play, and, and I'm going to use this extensively next week. And then number eight, you're going to resolve interpretive issues and problems. So this is where you resolve interpretive issues um, that, that come about. So what, what is the main question? So you've analyzed the text. What question are you answering? And, and there are all types of problems that you may encounter. Um, let's just talk about a few here. So there are textual problems. There are issues of textual criticism. Can we trust this? You know, Paul talks about, um, or he's addressing the, the, the church in Ephesus. But if you look at a footnote, you'll see some manuscripts don't use the word Ephesus. And so looking at textual criticisms and how accurate are we, are we using the, the best approach or the most extensively used interpretive knowledge? Um, this is where you dive into a lot of those issues as well as, as, as from a theological perspective, what questions are we answering? So this is where you really dive into the why. And I, I love diving into the why because it really gets to the heart of God and you find so much beauty in the text because God writes his, his, 
his words to us in a very beautiful and meaningful way. And so we want to resolve those and we want to answer those questions. And a few principles to resolving problems um, really goes into some some of the ways I can say this is some of the basic principles we have set out for exegesis apply directly to solving problems and principles like identifying correctly the literary genre, principles like carefully examining the literary and historical context. These consult outside sources, but always check their proposals because the against the text so so there are always three key principles that arise directly from what we have been talking about before um and and i won't go into all of them but i would say the most important one is that we remember that the holy spirit is the one who illuminates the scriptures okay so john 14 6 the holy spirit will teach you all these things there is a passage given to jesus's original 12 disciples but certainly has application for us Again, 1 John 2, 20, 27, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you will all know the truth. We can know the truth because the Holy Spirit is our guide. Again, that does not replace detailed study of the text, right? That's the whole reason of this podcast. But it does not replace examining the text in its historical and literary context, but it does remind us that ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who will guide us unto all the truth. And so we must rely on the Holy Spirit when studying the text and resolving these problems, but that doesn't just cancel out a detailed approach to the text. But I'd still say that's, I want to put the Holy Spirit definitely at the forefront of what we're doing here um, because he will illuminate what is going on. And then number nine, we're going to evaluate our results from the perspective of a wider contextual and theological issue. So looking at this particular passage or a particular passage, you know, how does it fit into the rest of scripture? Does it align with the main theme of the Bible? Does it align with the rest of what is being taught on this particular concept or issue? It must align. The Bible does not contradict itself. And so we must see how this aligns with the rest of our conclusion go differently than the rest of the conclusion of scripture? If so, why does that, is it talking about a particular event? Is it talking about a particular issue that doesn't relate to the general church or whatever that is? And so we must be aware of how this fits into the wider context and theological issues. And then number 10, you summarize the results. So I always find this in my world as being a sermon. Now you're summarizing to the body what your discovery is. You might be doing a Bible study. You might be just doing a journal for yourself. Summarize what this passage means. It could be one verse. You went through the entire exegetical method on one verse. I, I hope you do so. Um, summarize your results. Write it down. What's the, what's, the main, what's the main principle that you're drawing out? And what is the main application? It could be many applications. But what is the main principle? And what are the applications, right? That's how we teach. Principle leads to application. One principle, many applications. Okay, so those were the 10 uh, methods of, of, of a proper exegesis. Again, the first one, identify the genre. Two, get the big picture, historical, literary context. Three, develop a thesis statement. What is the main thing being said? Four, outline the progress of thought in the passage. Five, consult secondary sources, commentaries, or other historical literature. Six, analyze synaptical relationships. How are these clauses working together? Seven, analyze key terms and themes, do a word study. What are some key words? How, you, how are they used? Why are they being used? How unique are the words? Number eight, resolve interpretive issues and problems. Nine, evaluate the results in the wider context of scripture. And 10, find the main principle and find the application. Okay, so next week, we're going to be using these 10 uh, steps in 
in evaluating 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, which is extremely exciting for me since it's the passage I've studied um, a lot in my, in my studies, as well as taught on. It's a controversial topic which aligns perfectly with this podcast, but I'm going to show you how I'm going through these 10 exegetical steps and actually going to show you the, the proper way to interpret that text and not one that is just a simplified approach or one that just throws historical context out the window, but uses these these 10 steps to to answer and and give a proper addition, addition, red rendering of that passage. So tune in next week as we evaluate that. Um, I hope that you found this useful. Um, you can go back and, and evaluate these 10 steps again at Bible or biblicaltraining.org. If you'd like, and also read up on those, um, that's where I got these from, so biblicaltraining.org. I hope you uh, enjoyed this podcast again. Uh, God bless. Like and share if you want, and uh, we'll see you next week when we, we talk about 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15.